Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the May the 10th, 2022. <laughs> I was going to say May the 22nd, 2022, but these dates are fluid. I don't know how important they are. I don't seem particularly important when it comes to COVID. It doesn't matter when we are, but COVID is still stealing the headlines. In San Francisco, according to SFGate, COVID cases are increasing. I don't know why they put an image of the, the Golden Gate Bridge behind those people, <laughs> perhaps... Uh, Whenever you have a headline about San Francisco, you need to include the bridge. But even on the less fashionable side of the Bay Area in Santa Clara, rising levels of COVID once again. Unfortunately, we never have headlines when the levels are going down, only when they go up. Another very troubling headline um, from the New York Times about gun deaths surging during the pandemic's first year. They didn't even need to talk about COVID. It's just the pandemic, whether that's coincidence or not, it's troubling and also intriguing. Bill Gates now apparently has the coronavirus, which might undermine some of those conspiracy theories about <laughs> Gates infecting all of us with whatever he was trying to do at his foundation. Um, with cases falling, apparently China is tightening its pandemic rules. Surprise, surprise. The more cases fall in China, the more they tighten their pandemic rules. There is some good news, I guess. I mean, the vaccines are working, according to a CNN headline. So it's easy to make fun and be dire and depressing about all this. But um, there is some good news. It Sometimes all this appears more fictional than fact, more suited to fiction writers than non-fiction writers. And my guest today on the show, Jim Shepard, has um, not a new book. It came out last year. It's now out in paperback. Phase six, which fairly or not is described as a COVID book. Um, one headline in the Washington Post suggests that uh, Shepard's phase six makes COVID look like a dress rehearsal. And the LA Times, a very authoritative paper, especially when, kind of, when it comes to the review of fiction, suggests that if you can bear to read one pandemic dystopia in 2021, this should be it. And I'm thrilled that Jim is joining us from um, his home in Massachusetts on the western edge of Massachusetts. Jim, uh, welcome. Great to talk to you. Um, did you intend to write Phase 6 as a COVID book? Does it irritate you that your reviewers are suggesting that it's a COVID book because it kind of is and it kind of isn't. Is that fair? That's fair. Um, and in fact, it was conceived uh, before COVID. Um, I'm one of those hapless Cassandras uh, who... Uh, I'm married to a Cassandra, quite literally, Jim, <laughs> so you've got to be careful with that. Don't call them hapless. <laughs> well, there's hapless Cassandras and then there's the successful Cassandras like the one you're married to. Um, in my case, I'm one of the hapless ones in that, um, you know, this was a prediction that I, um, like many, many uh, other people, including most of the epidemiologists in the world, uh, was making uh, decades ago. Um, and I thought um, I wasn't going to write about it at all until I came across, I don't know if you remember, Andrew, there was a story out of Siberia 
uh, about seven years ago about a 12-year-old boy who died of anthrax. Yeah, the um, anthrax story uh, triggered, at least according to The Guardian, a report on that by climate change, although The Guardian seems to think everything bad's triggered by climate change. <laughs> well, um, anthrax hadn't been seen in Russia in 75 years, and investigators figured out finally that what had happened is uh, long dormant spores of anthrax uh, buried in a reindeer carcass had rejuvenated themselves to infect the boy. Um, and I thought uh, once you put that together with the fact that uh, the Russians and the Greenlanders are uh, mining all the way across their upper extremities now, uh, so they're digging up literally millions of tons of permafrost and um, piling it up next to miners who work on it all day and then fly back to their homes through uh, Europe, um, I thought, well, this is not one of those uh, if situations. This is one of those when situations. Um, so I started working on the novel uh, maybe in 2017. I delivered it um, in February of 2020 to Kanaf. Um, and right then COVID was hitting. And Kanaf thought, well, what do we do with this now? Um, and that was a very good question. Um, I think they thought we can't really bring it out right in the middle of COVID. We can't bring it out as it's, I mean, they, they just didn't know what to do with it. So we sat on it for a year and brought it out then. Um, but as the Los Angeles Times headline would suggest, um, pretty much the last thing most people want to read at this point is about um, COVID, it would, it would, it would appear. Um, but nevertheless, um, you know, you write what you are, are obsessed about. Um, and, you know, I'm one of those people who, follows that odd despairing advice that career counselors give you, find something you're doing anyway and find a way to make it pay. It's funny, this book, though. I would never, if someone said, who's going to be the, the American writer, the fiction writer who writes the book about COVID, I never would have guessed it would have been you, not because of your ability, but because of your history as a fiction writer. Mm. Many people will be, many of our viewers will be familiar with your book. The Book of Aaron, for example, which got described, uh, someone was uh, Joshua Ferris, who called it a slim masterpiece, wrote, Jim Shepard has always been preoccupied by history. Mm -hmm. This new book, uh, Jim, Phase Six, it's not really historical, is it? It's not. Um, I, it's probably fairer to say that I've been preoccupied by nonfiction more than uh, history and that I've written about science a lot in the past. I'm keenly aware, um, you know, I'm always trying to make myself a, a more interesting and smarter human being, and I'm keenly aware what a uphill struggle that is. And it's more of an uphill struggle with me with science than it is with history. Um, but I've written about physics in the past. I've written about um, microbiology in the past. And so it's not impossible uh, in, in, in terms of the kind of stuff I do to imagine me straying into this area. Uh, mostly, though, um, what I tend to be drawn to is catastrophe. Um, and that, of course, is something that... And you don't um, seem to me, and I, sorry to interrupt. No, uh, no, no, no. You don't seem to me, Jim, to be a particularly catastrophic type of fellow. You seem <laughs> the opposite. I don't know what the word would be. Is there an opposite what? word for a catastrophic type? Um, I think people tend to think of catastrophic types as dour um, or as, uh, uh, you know, a crestfallen or humorless and I'm certainly not those things um, but nevertheless my my imagination does tend towards disaster and of course that makes me it's taken me from being a faintly worrisome fringe figure of about 30 years ago to now being someone who just looks like he reads the newspapers um, and and 
if you're drawn to catastrophe, um, you often write about historical catastrophes. Um, one of two of the things I've written about since phase six were uh, the Labor Day hurricane in 1935 in Florida, which uh, was one of the most catastrophic hurricanes ever to hit the United States. Um, and the Johnstown flood, uh, which was the most catastrophic flood to ever hit the United States. Both of those are historical works. Um, in this case, um, you're so, I'm sort of imagining uh, what is likely coming down the road towards us, but I'm also working um, from history in the sense of, uh, you know, researching uh, the way we've prepared, or better way to put it, failed to prepare globally for these pandemics that are coming down the road at us. Jim, you uh, also wrote a wonderful uh, collection of essays, uh, 2016, 2017, The Tunnel at the End of the Light, <laughs> in which you argue that some of our most persistent and destructive assumptions come from the movies. I wonder if we have too much of a, a sim cinematic imagination, especially when it's come to an actual catastrophe like COVID. We tend to make it too much into a movie, do you think? And are you and Phase Six trying to make it literature, literary rather than cinematic? It's a useful distinction to make, I think, Andrew. Uh, I think we are in some ways uh, hopelessly um, bound to cinematic models because most of us have seen many more uh, things on television or on, on movie screens than we've read. Um, and, and I think the effect that has on our imagination is, is it makes us drawn to the visceral and away from the ruminative. And that's, you know, it has some advantages, but it has a lot of disadvantages as well. Um, I think when I write something like phase six, I try to bear in mind that I'm, I'm drawn like everybody else to uh, the visceral and the visual and the cinematic. But I'm also uh, trying to uh, push back against that as well and to remind myself that uh, literature is, in fact, uh, about in, in, in a lot of ways about interiority, and it's about um, the thinking, and it's about language. Um, right. So, so you're you're not the only person to have written a, co a quote unquote COVID book, although you wrote your COVID book before COVID. Larry uh, Lawrence Wright, of course, wrote the end of October. A number of other books. Do you feel a particular literary responsibility as a fiction writer in terms of writing about COVID? Uh, I saw an interview you did with Elizabeth Colbert, who, of course, and if I pronounce, I always get her last name to pronounce it wrong. She's not like Colbert, Colbert, but no, it's Colbert. Colbert. Uh, she's an environmental writer under a white sky. The nature of the future. Do you have a a particular responsibility? Do you think as a fiction writer in terms of presenting, engaging this stuff differently for your readers? I think I do. In, in, I mean, I, I think uh, any fiction writer I admire uh, feel, feels a sense of responsibility. On the one hand, you would seem like you're off the hook. Uh, you know, when, a, when Betsy Colbert writes uh, nonfiction, she's writing nonfiction. Um, when I'm writing fiction, I'm writing fiction, right? So I can do things. You know, I, I'm running all these ideas by microbiologists and epidemiologists, but I'm also saying, well, you know, what would be cool in dramatic terms would be if I did X, Y, and Z. And I just want to make sure that when the microbiologists and the epidemiologists get a hold of these ideas, they don't laugh, that they go, yeah, that's, fe that's feasible. Um, Betsy has a much different responsibility, right? She has to describe what literally happened. Um, but in my case also, I'm describing, one of the things I'm doing that Betsy's not that interested in doing is providing the worm's eye view, providing the human sense of an imagined version of what it's like to be at ground zero 
uh, of an outbreak like this or what it's like to be in an ER from the inside when these cases are rolling in or what it's like to be an epidemiologist trying to solve this problem. Um, so, you know, there are all sorts of nonfiction texts you can go to that'll help you with uh, any one of those spe uh, specific subjects, but a novel like mine can range around and do a lot of those things at once. And when I'm doing that, I'm trying to be as responsible as a nonfiction writer would be, um, but I'm also aware that uh, I'm building an aesthetic object, that I'm, I'm making decisions for dramatic and, and aesthetic reasons as well. How much is your book an environmental book? Uh, it, it's a book in part about Greenland, um, but it's a book. It could be a book, for example, about the Bering Strait. We did a wonderful uh, interview with a, I'm not sure if you're familiar, a historian Bathsheba Demuth on the Bering Strait. She has mm -hmm. a new book out, Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Strait. Right. How much in your mind uh, is the COVID or the pandemic crisis um, indistinguishable from our environmental crisis, given your focus, of course, on anthrax and the Arctic Circle and Greenland. I'm assuming that you see these two crises as minimally in parallel and, and probably quite entangled. Yeah, I think entangled would be the right term. And in fact, um, ramifying geometrically with each other would be another way of putting it. Um, and um, you know, again, with a novel, you're ranging around in all sorts of um, directions, right? So on the one hand, there's a huge amount about um, the, the ecology and, and um, uh, devastation that Greenland is facing right now in terms of mining. But there's also a lot about the megastructures, the political megastructures that allow this kind of thing to happen. There's a, a huge amount about the individuals who are trying to deal with it in various different ways, right? So Again, one of the things, uh, both uh, for better and for worse, that a novel does that a nonfiction work doesn't do so much is um, uh, move from uh, subject to subject uh, with a lot more alacrity. Um, and um, in this case, the, it's in, you can't get away from the environment as a subject. Um, but I wouldn't say that the book is belaboring the environmentalism part of it uh, to the extent of uh, occluding other stuff, you know. The New York Times reviewer uh, picked up on, in, in his review to the book, suggests that most dystopias are Orwellian in the sense that they assume some sort of big brother in control. But your, and if it is a dystopia, I'm not entirely sure, your dystopia presents the nightmare of, <laughs> of no one being in charge. Is that a, a fair observation? Is that what you were suggesting in the book in part? I think it, one of what we one of the things we saw um, is because these uh, these pathogens are all um, I mean they have precursors but they're all sui generis they're all brand new things uh, we're all uh, groping around in the dark um, and so one of the ways in which poor Dr Fauci for example has been uh, clubbed over the head over and over again is um, having to say periodically, you know, those things that I thought were true may not be true. Um, because not only are, uh, are we not entirely sure what we're dealing with, but what we're dealing with is a moving target. It's mutating. Um, and so um, that sense of, well, who's in charge here um, is very palpable in the case of what do you do about a pandemic? Um, because you not only have a competing political and um, economic interests, but you also have um, competing uh, uh, notions about what needs to be done. Um, and some people are working, operating in, in good faith and running head on into each other. 
And yet other people are operating in bad faith, right? And as we saw and are sort of saying, well, we're keeping businesses open no matter what. Um, Is it too cute, um, Jim, to, and we've done a number of shows on this, to conceptually suggest that the conspiracy virus, uh, the virus of fake news is as dangerous as COVID. Are they similar? Is it coincidental that we have a quote unquote virus of fake news in an age of COVID where you know, increasingly people don't even seem to trust the science that a scientist at least claim saves us? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, the heartbreak about this is because of the instability of what um, our experts can tell us as, you know, because we're dealing with a moving target that emphasizes, it underlines that, that uh, anti-science and, and um, uh, skepticism, that resistance that's been coming from all directions, right? Um, so, you know, uh, what I would get often from ex-students or from uh, friends around the country or whatever, you know, if, if there was something that proved the CDC was wrong about one thing, you know, they would write me and go, see, the CDC doesn't know what it's talking about. Um, and that, that tendency to feel that our professional class has let us down, um, you know, it, it, it has a real basis in reality, right? Because we know that in some ways our managerial classes have let us down. Our elites have led us astray in some ways, right? By taking care of themselves, by feathering their own nests, that kind of thing. Um, but what that's created is a kind of sense of, uh, so we don't have to listen to any experts anymore. And that's a, that's a really dangerous position to be in. Uh, when you decide what science you like, um, that's when you really start to get into trouble. In, in a funny way, um, you have your expert cake and eat it in phase six <laughs> in the sense that um, your heroes or heroines are two women. Uh, two women get to work to save the world from a pandemic, as the New York Times headline suggested. One book that occurred to me in terms of reading and comparing with your book is Richard Powers's book, Bewilderment. I'm mm. sure you're familiar with it. I'm sure you're mm. familiar with Powers's work, in which he places wisdom not with scientists, but with children. I know you're intrigued with the wisdom of children. Mm. Was it any coincidence that it were that it's young women who were the heroines of phase six, Jim? No, it wasn't. What I wanted to do actually was foreground this sense of um, the, the fragility of authority. And one of the things that uh, I was struck by whenever I talked to medical professionals or epidemiologists or uh, 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 any kind of research scientists who were women was how often they would tell me stories about um, how difficult it was to uh, register with whoever they were talking to that they should be listened to because of uh, their gender, essentially. Um, and so I thought, well, this is very useful for my purposes in dramatic terms. One of the things the CDC likes to do um, is when there is an outbreak of something, they like to throw uh, some of their younger uh, EIS investigators into what they call a deep uh, part of the pool and uh, just see what happens. You know, they figure they can be in touch with the older people back in the CDC, but let's let them get their feet wet. Um, and so the the sheer terror of that, of being sent off uh, to um, engage a, a pathogen that nobody can identify, um, and you feel like you've just been uh, out of training for just a year or two, is I think amplified even more when you show up and you're a pair of women 
and you're uh, facing a group of men who think, wait, this is who the CDC sent. Um, and so that the dramatic possibilities of that interested me a lot, I think. The heroes or the heroines of your book, as I said, are very different from uh, the hero of Richard Powers' bewilderment, who, who is an autistic child. We did a, a number of shows recently on what's now we're now calling neurodivergency. Do you think it's coincidental that um, that we have this rise, particularly rise in scientific interest in autism, in neurodivergency? At the same time where we're challenging our elites, we're challenging our scientists, and we seem to be rethinking everything, particularly in the context of many people believing that your and my generation have let the younger generation down. So it's more than just one generation. It it might reflect um, uh, a a kind of, I don't know what the word is, and and, and a a profound, a sort of epistemological way of thinking about the world. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think there's any doubt that there's a sense that um, those authorities that we thought we could count on, we can't count on anymore. And while on the one hand, there's a little bit of a liberatory feel of that. But on the other hand, it, there's a, a very large destabilizing feel to it, I think. Uh, and that would explain why, as you're pointing out, any number of uh, subjects that uh, we would have thought had been put to bed a long time ago, have been raised again. And that's why uh, so many uh, truisms or uh, uh, assumptions that we would have imagined to be bedrock assumptions just a a decade ago uh, are under assault in some ways. You yourself love to be photographed with dogs. Um, (laughs) I love this photograph of you for people who are just listening. It's it's Jim and three of his favorite friends, non-canine friends. Um, the wisdom of animals and the wisdom of children, are they bound up with one another too, Jim? Uh, uh, and is this part of our cultural revolution, our challenge to everything? Just as we question the wisdom of elders, we question the wisdom of Homo sapiens generally. We've done a number of shows on that too. I think, there, I think that's right. You know, I think that um, any number of revelations that have been too long in coming um, are starting to filter together, right? So um, we have decided that any animal we eat uh, can't be that intelligent um, simply because uh, we don't want to imagine we're eating intelligent animals. And uh, research recently has demonstrated, you know, that octopi can use tools um, that, mm. you know, um, uh, you know, that whales communicate in ways way more intricate than we ever would have imagined. Yeah, you know, Simon Montgomery, like the naturalist, was on the show. She has a new book out about hawks. She Earlier this week, she was reminding us of that. So essentially, as those paradigms shift, um, that aligns with all of this other stuff we've been just talking about, right? Where we, uh, Why should we believe uh, that, that we have uh, greater primacy? Why should we believe we have greater authority? Um, so it's, it's really the same sort of model, right? Why do humans take precedence over porpoises? Why do adults take precedence over children? And whereas 35 years ago, uh, an eminent person would have said, well, that's just silly. Those are just silly comments. You know, now there's a, a, a lot of pushback um, uh, on those notions. And, you know, without uh, romanticizing children too much, <clears throat> you know, they, they do, as Henry James pointed out, in his uh, in, uh, preface to what made the novel, what Maisie knew, you know, children have perceptions far more intricate and um, 
and intelligent, then they have the vocabulary to uh, express them. And so we, we do believe that um, what children are perceiving, uh, they're perceiving at a, at a very uh, complicated and, and uh, um, intricate rate of speed. Uh, but we also think, uh, you know, we're not going to let them legislate, right? Uh, but that means that they get to do things like um, question authority at an even younger age um, and question some of the things that uh, we've been assuming are, are rock solid. Yeah, we, we seem to think that uh, we had a professor of philosophy on, Scott Hershevich, uh, last week talking about how kids are perhaps somehow more naturally philosophical, grasp philosophy better than adults. Yeah. I wonder, with your keen sense of history, um, <laughs> Jim, have we been through this before, this hubris, this narcissistic love of ourselves hubris of course and narcissism are words invented by the ancient greeks uh, we had nicholas christakis the mit uh, scientist and philosopher on the show last year talking about what ancient stories can teach us not just about covid19 but about pandemics in general he had an interesting book out apollo's arrow do we need to go backwards or forwards to make sense of all this jim or simultaneously do we need to go both back and forth. Yeah, you'll be unsurprised to hear that I'm in the latter camp, right? I mean, uh, the old saw about history is that those who don't learn it are doomed to repeat it. And, and God knows we can look back over the history of our engagement with pandemics and learn a lot. Um, and in fact, uh, as, as uh, the Obama administration despairingly pointed out to the Trump administration, they had tried to do this and they had put together a, seed, uh, a, a, a pandemic playbook uh, with just this worry in mind, um, and then the, the Trump administration had thrown it out. Um, and that's sort of like a microcosm for how uh, we've operated globally, right? Some of us have um, assiduously stored away the information that we think we need to deal with the next pandemic coming down the road. And then usually for political or economic reasons, uh, others have decided uh, we don't need to worry about that. We can throw that information right out the door. So, Jim, you are on to COVID or... I don't know if you were onto COVID, you were onto <laughs> pandemics before COVID. Uh, and you will, I think you're the kind of guy who will be with COVID, even when pandemic has been replaced by something else in the headlines. What have you most learned from your research and the book about what we should do? We had um, the British science journalist Rowan Hooper on the show. Um, he has a new book out, How to Save the World for Just a Trillion Dollars. If you had a trillion dollars and we needed to focus on confronting the threat of anthrax and these other pandemics, what should we be doing? Wow, that's a good question. Um, what what did Roland suggest doing with his trillion? He's a, he's a big environmental guy, but he also believes in, I wouldn't say colonizing space, but certainly going out <laughs> there and figuring it out, which I, I'm certainly not convinced of that one. Right. You need to look at the book. It's an interesting book. And we did the interview a few days ago, so uh, you can look at that too. The problem with the, you know, I understand the let's let's uh, get off of Earth thing, but the problem with that is um, it, it's giving up on Earth, and, and it's also giving up on everybody who's going to be left behind on Earth, um, because of course the 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 guest list for who's going to be leaving is not going to be democratically uh, figured out. Um, so I'm always I'm like you, I'm a little. Uh, leery of anything that's sort of like off earth as a solution um, but uh we, we we began this talking about 
China tightening pandemic rules. China does what China does. It doesn't listen. It's not interested in American or European policy. One of the things that Ryan Hooper talked about, and I think he's right, is the need for global responses to these sorts of things. Is that true? I mean, your book, uh, Phase Six, begins and takes place in Greenland and inspired by what happened in Russia. Um, is, is there true. a need for a more international response to these things? It is. And, you know, anybody, it's very easy to say we need international responses and then to sort of throw up your hands and say, well, I guess the world didn't want to cooperate. But it's not a matter of people just being recalcitrant. It's a matter of, you know, one of, as one of the epidemiologists said to me, um, and it, a line that got into the novel, um, you know, when when culture runs into science, science always loses. Um, and and China is a really good example of this, right? They have extraordinary measures that they're willing to take to lock down once a pandemic breaks out, but they refuse to do anything about the wet markets that are generating pandemics because the wet markets are, are a cultural thing that they don't, they don't feel strong enough to, to just eliminate. So you have these markets where, you know, there's 17 different mammals and bats and everything just piled up on top of one another, you know, shitting down on top of one another and, and um, you know, creating the, the perfect situation for a pandemic outbreak um, and they won't clean those up or they won't clean the most up as, as well as they need to. Um, so a lot of times what's happening is uh, there's a, there's a, a concerted response, but a concerted response that's falling short for a number of political or cultural reasons. Um, even though the science that uh, would suggest that uh, those reasons should be swept aside. You did a piece um, for Oprah of all places, Oprah.com. <laughs> sharing your your fears your fantasies your intuitions and insights into making a world out of words and the image for people watching was of sandcastles which i'm not sure if they meant that ironically or critically <laughs> what are you most though leaving aside sandcastles because of course they get swept away by the tide what what do you want people to remember from phase six jim uh, it's a novel and you're a very talented writer so people will take away a lot of your your fictional tricks and skills but is there a, a a central message that you want the world to remember from phase six you know there is a way in which um um i think one of the um one of the epigraphs for phase six is everybody has a plan uh, it's from uh, uh mike tyson uh, yeah it's that great tyson quote until you get punched in the face <laughs> right everybody has a plan to get punched in the face but one of the other epigraphs is uh from one of the scientists who dealt with the aids epidemic and he said you know one of the, when the history of the aids epidemic uh is written um we're going to be able to say some of us that when the time came we did not run away from each other uh we were there for each other um and that sense uh, that in the middle of the most terrifying kind of isolating and devastating um, danger, uh, human beings uh, will be there for each other. They will uh, do what they can to uh, both bear witness to what they're going through and to provide whatever help they can. Um, that's not a, a small thing at all. And it's also something that literature itself is very good at uh, being able to uh, get at um, uh, because literature is so much about uh, the human heart as well as the big mega structures of society. You, know? you put that H back into your word, Jim, with that. <laughs> I was joking before with Jim that he, his, his, his last name Shepherd is without an H with all its religious connotations. 
Is there any religion in the book? Are you a believer, Jim? Did it make you more uh, or less, did COVID make you and, and the writing of the book, did it make you more or less religious? It probably made me more of a humanist. Uh, so no, it didn't make me more religious, but it made me understand um, that uh, those, those, those structures that people have that allow them to stand with each other are, are not to be laughed at, that's for sure. Well, it's a must read. It's out in paperback now. No excuses, everyone. Phase six. Uh, phase six. Uh, it is, um, as the LA Times said, the book to read. <laughs> if you can bear to read one pandemic dystopia, this is the one, whether it's 2021 or 2022. Congratulations, Jim, on that. Thank and you, on Andrew. Generally on your career. What else? Um, and, and you're a very well-read man. What else should people be reading in May 2022? Maybe on COVID, maybe to take their mind off COVID. Here's a, a, a very cool book that I'm reading right now. It's called Other Lands, and it's by a, a British uh, paleobiologist named Thomas Halliday. Oh. And what he does is he walks you back through the various geologic periods, um, starting with the Pliocene and going all the way back to the first microbial life. And with each um, epochal jump, he essentially for a chapter tells you what it would be like to be in that world um, on the ground. Mm. Um, and so it's a lovely kind of uh, backwards tour of um, America's uh, history of life, really. It's a, a really wonderful idea for a book and he does a beautiful job with it. It's funny, it's whenever I have a, a fiction writer on the show, they always pick nonfiction. Whenever I have nonfiction writers, <laughs> they pick fiction. There's clearly, uh, a lot of uh, cross-disciplinary love and perhaps even envy. And finally, Jim Shepard, your new book uh, or your, your book, which is now out in paperback, Phase 6, um, supposedly introduces a dystopia where nobody is in charge of the world as opposed to Big Brother. Is that true, Jim Shepard? Um, in May 2022, is no one in charge of the world? Is nobody running the show? Oh, I think there's a number of people running the show. I think the problem is a number of them would be eliminated by a good saliva test. If we were able to deliver one. <laughs>